So I'd like to talk about uh, wisdom, compassion, and courage this evening. And what my intention is with, e with um, th the talks in these evenings is I want to more or less give a talk for about somewhere 40 minutes or less, and then have uh, just a short time of quiet reflection for each of us, and then we'd have some time for a discussion afterwards. So what I'd like to ask you to do, if you can hold your questions until the discussion period, that'd be great. Um, so I was reflecting some, first of all, on the uh, quality of this being spring and things being very much uh, bursting forth and kind of an extended spring with, uh, at least around here, with uh, uh, multiple rains in ways that don't always uh, come in this way. You know, we had rain pretty much uh, for periods of the last two weeks, uh, which uh, isn't so usual. And it's, I think it's a wonderful time to do a retreat. You know, it's, uh, some of you are very explicitly here, as it were, uh, sowing the seeds for new beginnings. You know, just as a, a gardener will, will, will do planting now, some of you are ready to move in new directions. And the retreat really represents uh, a commitment to that, taking time off from uh, busy life and, in a way, giving a gift to yourself and to your spirit, to your, to your being, to our being. And I was also reflecting on how this quality of beginnings, of new beginnings that we find in the spring, is a quality that I mentioned at the end of the sitting, is also a quality of this practice, which really invites us to continually begin again. In that way, it's a very merciful practice doesn't matter what's happened. Sometimes we feel bad about the past or we have difficulties about the past and the, the um, practice just invites us, come back to the present. And if, there's, if the present includes pain in relation to the past, then we can work with that. But we are invited to come back and continually make a fresh start. There's something that's very merciful about that. It's, it's a uh, it's not a kind of uh, spiritual practice which involves, uh, to my, in my experience, a lot of promulgation of guilt. Many of us have other approaches which do that quite well. <laughs> you know, other, whether they're spiritual traditions or familial traditions or whatever. So partly in the spirit of that uh, fresh beginning, I wanted to uh, talk this evening about what could be considered the core intention of this practice, which I think is to develop wisdom, compassion, and courage, and to give us a, sort of a deeper understanding of the orientation. In a way, for those of you who know Buddhist teachings, this would be equivalent to the first step in the so-called Eightfold Path which is the step of talking about uh, appropriate or wise uh, understanding, or we could say, or wise orientation, naturally would be the first step in, really in, a, in, a, in a spiritual 
path. And these, you know, and so we can think about these principles of wisdom, compassion, and courage as that which is very, very helpful to remember uh, during, the, during our daily life, but especially in moments of difficulty. In moments when we're, di- when we're having difficulty or there's confusion, we can come back to the ge- our general orienting principles. You know, I was thinking of a, a story I heard from friends when I was uh, visiting in England and there was, there was, I stayed at a, a Buddhist community that was in uh, Devon called the Sharpen Community. And they were telling me a story of how they were struggling as a community. It was about 10 people and a lot of their friends and other people liked to visit them. And at a certain, sometimes they felt like they were just getting too many guests. They were overrun by guests and you know, they're eating food and costing money and all these things. And they were just having a hard time. Should we have more guests or should we get rid of them or tell them to go home or what should we do with these guests? And, and they were really struggling until at one point someone just said, what about compassion? And you know, all these people who were supposedly doing Buddhist practice, so it was like a, the, okay, compassion, that's, yes. Because basically when people get into stressful situations, we regress and we forget what our priorities are. Have you noticed that? That we tend to, that we tend when we're in stressful situations really to go back in ways to earlier states of being. And so it's very, and so they, they said, oh yes, compassion. And they were able to let that compassion give them a way of working with the problems of guests because it made them say, yes, of course we want to have guests, but maybe we can have a few safeguards for our own well-being. And that, just that one person mentioning the word compassion kind of cut through three or four hours of discussion. And so it's something that we can, we can remember. And as you listen to the talk, you can also ask of these qualities of wisdom and compassion and courage, where do I need to develop? Where am I, where do I feel called of these qualities? So typically, the so-called dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, are often understood in terms of wisdom and compassion. And when I get to courage, I'm going to explain why I included that as a third. Because typically we talk about the dharma or the teachings having these two wings, the wings of wisdom and the wings of compassion. And that's a beautiful way to look at it, but I'm going to say that uh, something like courage is also really, really crucial. So what is wisdom? And what do we, what do we, how do we develop wisdom in this practice? So I wanted to, with each of these qualities, just do a little bit of uh, evocative reading from a book by a friend of mine called The Book of Qualities by Ruth Gendler. I don't know if, does anyone know this book? Yeah. It's a wonderful book and Ruth is, Ruth is a really good friend of mine. She lives like a few blocks away. And it's a beautiful book. I, I read this book actually before I even met her. You know, but she's, she's, a, she's an artist and a poet. And th- what this book does is it takes about, I don't know, 50 or more qualities of human nature, of the human heart, uh, qualities like pleasure, worry, fear, patience, confusion, loneliness, despair, judgment, discipline, anxiety, and so forth. And it personifies them. It turns them into characters. 
that you might meet on the street. And so what I want to do is to preface each of my discussions of wisdom, compassion, and courage by reading her uh, personifications of these qualities. So here's, first of all, wisdom. And I don't know whether why it quite worked out like this, but uh, all of the uh, wisdom and compassion and courage are all women in this book. So I don't, I think this is pretty evenly balanced, but I never checked, you know, in terms of gender. So we'll see. Anyway, but so I'll, I'll have to tell her that, that I found that. That's, that's interesting. So this is, how, this is wisdom. There's a little picture of wisdom. Kind of looks like a grandmother with a heart on her chest. Wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at, and sometimes the things she is looking at enters through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. The method that we work with here that leads to wisdom is the practice of mindfulness and the practice of loving kindness, I would say, as well. But particularly mindfulness. When we work with mindfulness, what we're really doing is we're partly through the working with the breath, we're partly quieting the mind so that we can see clearly. When our minds are overly active, we might say, or full of turmoil, it's very hard to see clearly. and We tend to get swept away according to the logic of our conditioning. And so with mindfulness, in a way, what we do is we decondition our minds and our being. We do that by watching our minds, our hearts, and bodies over and over again. Ad nauseum, if I could say so. <laughs> you know, meaning we just keep doing it. And we learn what our patterns are by repetition. And it's one of the, it's actually, um, it actually means that um, this isn't a kind of practice where everything gets done in a weekend. Perhaps you've noticed that. Things, uh, things can sometimes happen quickly, but it's, it takes a certain amount of endurance. There's like, it's like the old um, cartoon of the, the monks who are um, sitting around. This is, I think, from one of the New Yorker cartoons of all these monks who sit around. And the, the teacher is saying, I suggest that you pack your lunch. (laughs) And so we keep on noticing. We summon the energy to keep on noticing, even when it's hard, even when we don't want to. That's really what the discipline of mindfulness is. We keep on noticing. We 
start to see patterns after a while. We start to see certain patterns of mind. We see what our repetitive patterns are. When I was first uh, meditating and first doing, first doing this practice, I noticed that I was doing an absurd amount of planning. I was just planning everything that I had to do over and over and over again. Like I had, uh, you know, I had to do something the next day and I would, when I would meditate, I would notice, uh, you were planning that a hell of a lot of time. Does it really need that? I mean, like, you know, <laughs> you, know you were, what, um, you know, have to do, you know, buy something at the store in two days and think about it 80 times. I mean, isn't that excessive? You know, but I, you know, that, that would be a judgment. I was, I was just noticing, planning, okay, planning, 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 planning. <laughs> You know, and, I, and, and this is conditioning, you know. I come from a city, of, uh, from um, a family of planners. And my sister got her a master's degree in city planning. <laughs> so, so it's really, uh, this, is my, this is what I found when I sat. There's just a lot of planning. And through the course of many months of watching my planning, I was able to um, say for going to the store in two days, I don't need to plan it a hundred times. Thirty-five is quite adequate. <laughs> and, and so, um, so that's really what we do in the mindfulness practice. Um, we work with that repetition and we see over time what stands in the way of clear seeing, we see what stands in the way of really having an open heart. That's really what we start noticing. When we do the metta practice, we can begin really to see these patterns. And over time, and this is really what constitutes wisdom, over time when we start seeing the patterns, we see the patterns of mind and we notice that some of them lead to suffering and some of them lead towards well-being and freedom. We only can know that by watching over and over. We start to see, oh, that planning so many times brings me a certain degree of anxiety. It's maybe even based on a certain insecurity. And as I look at it more clearly, I say, whoa, look at that. I didn't know about that. And then then at a certain point, we have a choice. Do I really need to do that? I think I'm secure enough to plan it 35 times rather than 100. You know? And that's, that's wisdom. And we each have our equivalent of that. It's from the discernment of seeing clearly what's there. And that only comes when we can, because we can actually be mindful, which is very hard to do without training. The untrained person tends not to be able to see so clearly. There's another way that wisdom is talked about, which is very important, in the, particularly in the teachings of the Buddha. And that's through the teaching that many of you know, called the Four Truths, which was actually the teaching that the Buddha did when he was first um, awakened, when he was first enlightened. He went off and he met some of his former meditators who had meditated with him. And there are interesting stories. You know, the Buddha had been meditating with a bunch of other people 
And at a certain point he went off by himself and he, uh, in some ways, broke with what they had been doing. He, they had been doing very austere ascetic practices and at a certain point the Buddha said, I think that that has not really brought me what I want. And he, he actually accepted milk from a milkmaid. And he drank and he came back to greater health and it was actually that greater health which permitted the deeper awakening. So it's interesting, There's this, that's, that's the middle way actually. It's the middle way that is characteristic of, of Buddhist practice. And so he came to this, at that, I won't go into the story of his awakening at this point, but he came to this deep, deep awakening. And for a long time he said, uh, it's so simple, I'm not going to teach, no one would believe me. Because he would, he would say it's basically a version of just letting go of where we're grasping. That's, that's the core teaching. Very simple. He said, no one's going to believe me. They want something more complicated, you know. They want something. And he said, no one's going to believe me. And it's said that the uh, king of the gods, Brahma, came down and manifested before the Buddha and said, please teach. There are some beings with but little dust over their eyes and they will understand Please open, he said, open the door to the deathless. Open the door to this awakening. And the Buddha said, okay. And then he started walking around and he met his, he met, there's a very interesting story, which, which has to be authentic because it's so strange. When the first person that Buddha met was this guy walking on the, tr- on the, on the road, I guess, and he meets this guy, and the Buddha must be, you know, we would, if, you know, we would have to assume if he's an awakened being that he's just totally radiant and glowing and full of love. And he meets this guy, and the guy, he just meets the guy, and he says, the guy basically says, how are you doing? And he, they exchange pleasantries, and the guy goes on his way. <laughs> Nothing happens. We never hear about this guy for the rest of the whole text. It has to be authentic, because it's, it's just so... Um, lacking in any point. <laughs> so, uh, so then the Buddha meets his former meditators and they were a little bit judgmental towards him because he stopped his ascetic practices and they were continuing them. He said, you know, you, at first, they, you know, they would, if, they were, if we were using Southern Baptist language, we would say, they would have said, he's a backslider. Do you know Southern Baptist language? <laughs> um, that comes from my time living in Kentucky and Virginia, where I lived a long time. And um, so, but nonetheless, they saw that something was special about him, and they actually let go of their judgments about him being a backslider, and they listened to him. And it's that point that the Buddha taught his, gave his first teaching, and the teaching was the teaching of the four truths. And it's really the, it's really, it's often if you had to say. How is wisdom understood in these teachings? It's through the teaching of the four truths. And many of you know this teaching, so I think I'll, I, will, I will talk about it, but somewhat, somewhat briefly. But it's really the core of, um, it's really the core identity of what it means to uh, be doing Buddhist practice, if you identify that way. I remember once I was doing some consulting for a community in uh, New Mexico, 
that was being set up by some friends who were trying to set up a Buddhist-based community for the elderly, kind of like the equivalent of a meditative old folks home. <laughs> it's a great idea. You know, that would also, they also had a special interest in working with the ill and the dying. And then they had, they had medical, some medical training. And they were starting their community. And I and a friend of mine, uh, actually Diana Winston, who, I, who I've um, worked with and taught a lot, we were invited to come to New Mexico and help consult them. And they needed some help because they had people from varied traditions and didn't know what to do. And what we found was that the four truths when, when one was asked, how do you bring together people from different Buddhist traditions, from Zen or Tibetan or whatever, it was the four truths that unified them. They could all agree that this was a teaching that was very crucial and at the center for them. The four, the four truths are these. First, that there is suffering. Second, that there is a cause to suffering. Third, that it is possible to overcome suffering. And fourth, that there is a practical path that leads to the overcoming of suffering. So you might say that the first two truths are about suffering and its cause, and the second two truths are about freedom and its cause. And the first truth really basically lets us know that, there is, that, that it's okay that there's suffering in our lives, in human life, that it exists and we can, we can notice it. Do you need a, a cushion, Charlotte? You okay? Okay. 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 That, that, there, that there is, that there's suffering in our lives. And for many people, a teaching that begins with the recognition that there is indeed suffering is quite refreshing. In other words, we don't have to run from what's difficult in our lives. It's one way to say what this first teaching is, is that there, that, um, there's suffering and it's workable. That the suffering in our, in fact, the whole of the four truths basically tell us there is suffering and it's workable. But it's important to ask, what is suffering? And because in the English language, the word is used in a lot of different ways. And there is a particular teaching which illustrates the nature of suffering. And I think that we can, in English, um, distinguish, uh, from, distinguish between pain and suffering as a way to help us understand what the Buddha is talking about. In the original language of the Buddha, the word is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. Some of you know that word. It comes from words that have to do with a sort of um, off-centered quality, unsatisfactory quality. Um, it's related etymologically to the words that would characterize um, an axle of a wheel being off-kilter. So that's something about how whatever our attempts to make things perfect it doesn't work, and we have anguish over it. That's what suffering, that's what the word dukkha is about. Now it's important to really distinguish between um, what I would call pain, 
which is the actual unpleasant experience. The set of, we, we can distinguish between what's painful, which is the unpleasant, the unpleasant physical sensation, the unpleasant emotion, the unpleasant occurrence. And the Buddha is not aiming to say that the unpleasant experience is the problem. That's very important. Rather, what the problem is, is that because of the unpleasant experience, we react to it and we start becoming compulsive. Because of physical pain, as we were looking at uh, this afternoon, because of physical pain, I contract around the pain. And doctors have told me that 80% of what uh, patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but the reaction to the stimulus, the body contracting because of something unpleasant. And it's something very important to look at in our practice, as we were talking about with David's question earlier today. Can we see what in our experience is the raw, unpleasant experience? And what is the further reaction to the experience? The aim of our practice is actually not to get rid of unpleasant experiences, but it's to study very closely how we react to the unpleasant. Again, we can see it very concretely when we look to what's happening when I have a knee pain. We can watch the mind saying, this has to go. We can watch the body contracting. We can see that with emotions. It's very, again, as we mentioned earlier in the day, it's very obvious to see in terms of how emotions work in daily life. We have some difficult, let's say we have a difficult experience with a friend. We have a difficult emotional interaction with a friend where the friend and, and I have a conflict. And I'm f- finding myself, um, uh, whatever, angry or something. Or maybe I'm feeling sad. Or, and I can see myself, let's suppose I'm angry. I can watch how that anger, which in some ways may be a raw, unpl- mostly unpleasant experience, how that then starts to proliferate. And I start blaming my friend. I start making up stories about how the friend is to blame how it's because of that, how I'm right, this person's wrong. And you know from one difficult experience, we can proliferate hours and hours of conversation, right? Am I the only one who has this experience? (laughs) And what we begin, and it's the latter, which is the suffering. It's the reactivity, which is the suffering. The Buddha himself, luckily, I would say, is reported in the text as having, in his older age, a bad back. It's not heavily reported in the the books about the Buddha, but he did have a bad back. Sometimes he would say to his assistants, you know, because the tradition of giving evening talks comes from 2,500 years. Sometimes he would say to his assistant, Ananda, Hey, Ananda, my back's killing me. Can you give the talk tonight? True, that actually happened. I mean, it wasn't quite with that kind of colloquial American slang, but, but pretty much like that. And so the Buddha had a bad back, but presumably he didn't suffer. There was physical pain, and there wasn't the proliferation. And so he, the Buddha used a very powerful image for this at one point. He said that 
it's as if there are two arrows. We all are shot by an arrow, which is the arrow of the pain in our life. We have different amounts of pain. We each have a certain amount of pain in our life. There's the pain related to our life events. There's the physical pain that we all have as we sometimes get ill, as we age, you know, and as we approach death. There's, it comes with the territory, right? Would that it were different, but on this planet, that's how it works, right? I mean, we fight it, but, you know, it's like, who's going to win in the end, reality or our wishes about this? So, um, so we all have that, and that's the first arrow. We all have a certain amount of pain. The Buddha said, again, the aim of spiritual practice is not to get rid of the first arrow. But what happens is that because of the first arrow, we shoot ourselves and others with a second arrow. Because I have frustration, I take it out on others where I blame myself. And this is a, this is a very powerful principle that we can see personally, we can see it in relationships, we can see it in the world. What is the Middle East, among other things, if not a continual cycle of because I have pain, I want you to have pain. That's the nature of revenge-filled cycles, right? War is, war is really of that nature. People are caught in cycles of pain, shooting the second arrow over and over and over again. And so that's why, that's one way we can see that if we can actually learn not to shoot that second arrow, we become peacemakers with ourselves, but we also know the dynamics well enough so we can become peacemakers in our families, in our organizations, and possibly in the world. Because the dynamics in the world are exactly the same. It's that shooting of the second arrow. I once saw a uh, documentary by Bill Moyers on teenage murderers. And they were very revealing because they basically, the teenagers all said, more or less, I was in so much pain, I wanted someone else to feel the pain. That person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The second arrow. Because for whatever reason, the person was incapable of just dealing with the first arrow without shooting a second arrow. And that's, that's suffering. So that's expressed in terms of the Second truth, the first truth is that there is suffering. The second truth is that the cause of suffering comes from this compulsive and reactive, um, this compulsive reactivity to what's either unpleasant or actually in the, this teaching, it's also said that you can also, in a way, do the equivalent of shooting the second arrow with something very positive where you grab hold of it. In other words, the dynamic is the same. It's, we could call it reactivity in the mind. The cause of suffering is the reactivity in the mind that makes us either compulsively push something away, react to it, which in a way is shooting that second arrow, or compulsively grabbing hold of something, of things that we think are pleasant. So you can see it's a kind of symmetrical uh, attitude towards what's, what's either unpleasant, we push it away, we react to it, we don't want it, we uh, try to get rid of it, or the pleasant, we grab hold of it, we try to keep it there forever. And the Buddha said that this is the core 
of this is the core cause of suffering. That in a way, it comes from the fact that we cannot just be very easily with the unpleasant without trying to get rid of it in some reactive, unconscious way. And we can't even be with the pleasant without trying to grab hold of it and keep it ours forever. And this is the core of the second truth. And what we do in our practice is we start to see that. We start to see where our minds become reactive. We start to look very, very carefully at where there is reaction either towards the unpleasant or the pleasant. Sometimes it's the unpleasant, which is most easy to see. But it's the same thing with, we can do it also in the lunchroom. And I guess the lunchroom or the dining hall in general offers us opportunities for both pleasant and unpleasant experiences, right? Um, and some of you may have more one and more the other. But our relation to food is this beautiful place also to see where am I being compulsively reactive towards either towards the pleasant or towards the unpleasant. And it's that which is taken to be the core cause of suffering. It's the inability simply to be with what is without reaction. And so what we cultivate in the mindfulness practice is the ability to be present with what is in a clear and open way without reaction. So it can seem trivial. Oh, I'm with my knee pain right now. I watch it and I can be with that. I learn to be with that without needing necessarily to get rid of it. That may seem somewhat trivial and even masochistic. But I hope you that you can see that that learning to be with the knee pain without reactivity is training that's continuous with the ability to not react compulsively in the midst of an interpersonal conflict or in the midst of um, a social conflict. But to really be with what's difficult, face it, be with it openly, and then on the basis of one's best understanding and wisdom, act. But what's, what we cut through here is the reactivity. The third truth tells us the third truth tells us that that's actually possible. That it's possible to come to a state of peace and being able to be present with what is without that reactivity. And this is the awakening of the Buddha. And it's both a very large and powerful image of this deep, deep total awakening And that awakening is also something that we do in small ways all the time. When we are able to see clearly in the moment, that's an awake moment. Some people who are mathematically inclined say that the Buddha's awakening is simply the sum total of all the small awakenings. And in in Zen, they like to talk about big awakening and small awakening. And the small awakening is just being present with the flower as it's in its bloom outside. It's that ability to be present with what is, which, again, there's a continuum that goes all the way from that to the deepest understanding. And that's why you can see that we're, we're in a kind of training that starts in ways that are very workable and even modest, 
but that it's a training which actually can go to the depths. And I hope that you have the sense, uh, an understanding of, of why that is. The fourth truth is the truth of the practical path that makes possible this coming to awakening, this coming to freedom. And I won't go into so much detail on it right now because that could be a whole talk. And I may give a version of that talk near the end of the retreat. But there's a very practical path which was outlined, sometimes called the Eightfold Path, which generally consists of three dimensions. That, that the spiritual path consists of how we act in the world, how we act ethically in particular. And it's made up of um, right action, right livelihood, and what's the other one? Right action, right livelihood, and um, right speech. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right, right action. And you could, we could list others, of course. But this is, like, this is more or less one's action in the world. Then there's the meditation dimension, which is made up of right mindfulness, right constant, and right you could translate also as wise, means appropriate. So we would say appropriate mindfulness, appropriate concentration, and then appropriate effort. Effort is given as a meditative aspect of the path. And then the wisdom dimension is right understanding, which is more or less what I'm talking about uh, this evening, and then uh, right aspiration or right intention, you know, having our intentions lined up. And, and work on each of those eight dimensions constitutes the work on the path. And that's taken as the practical way to, or I should say a practical way, to come to, to, come to this awakening. Sometimes it's said that of these four truths, the truth of suffering is to be touched. The truth of the cause of suffering is to be understood. The truth of the end of suffering or the overcoming of suffering is to be realized. And the truth of the path is to be carried out. That's one way to look at it. And so we orient ourselves in that way. And yet there's also this other dimension of compassion the second quality that I wanted to talk about, the quality that we have been particularly looking at as an awakening of the heart that we, that we practice with the loving-kindness practice that we did this afternoon, and that uh, in a way balances the more cognitive dimension of wisdom, that we bring together the heart, which tends to be uh, juicy and f- overflowing, we bring that with the very clear mind, which tends to be precise and clear. And we understand that they, they require each other, that the clear mind requires an open heart, that a clear mind without an open heart will tend to become dry and even somewhat unbalanced, and that the open heart without the clarity can be um, overly, what should we say, mushy or as a Buddhist technical term, <laughs> uh, can be overly mushy or be unwise about boundaries. I think we know, we know many of those examples. So here is Ruth Gendler on compassion. Compassion wears Saturn's rings on the fingers of her left hand, 
She is intimate with the life force. She understands the meaning of sacrifice. She is not afraid to die. There is nothing you cannot tell her. I like that. That's a compassion. There's nothing you cannot tell her. Compassion speaks with a slight accent. She was a vulnerable child, miserable in school, cold, shy, alert to the pain in the eyes of her sturdier classmates. The other kids teased her about being too sentimental. And for a long time, she believed them. In ninth grade, she was befriended by courage. I love that. In ninth grade, she was compassion who thought that she was overly weak, was befriended by courage. Courage lent compassion, bright sweaters, explained the slang, showed her how to play volleyball, taught her you can love people and not care what they think about you. In many ways, compassion is still the stranger, neither wonderful nor terrible, herself utterly, always. Thank you, Ruth. There's a beautiful uh, passage from the uh, Hindu sage, uh, some of you may know, Nasargadatta, who was one of, a teacher of several of the people who teach here at Spirit Rock, including Jack Hornfield. He said this, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. The main practice that we develop this sense of compassion or the open heart is the metta practice that we've been doing. It's the, that we started this afternoon on. It's, the, it's developing this quality of the open heart of kindness that is there more and more. And loving kindness in the uh, tradition is the basic quality of the open heart and of kindness. It's taken that when loving kindness comes into contact with suffering, it becomes compassion. And so you might say that loving kindness and compassion are like, are like cousins or, or the other side of uh, the same coin. They're really the same quality, but the loving kindness is just the basic expression of that kindness. And compassion is kindness meeting suffering. And so when we develop loving kindness, we're also developing this ability to be compassionate. Because it's, it's really, well, it's for, for us to see, but it's really the quality of the open heart. It's a very simple quality. We can see it in people who've never done any kind of spiritual practice. We can see it perhaps in our grandparents or one of our grandparents or a kind aunt or uncle. Uh, we can see it in maybe people in the neighborhood who just have this quality of the open heart and kindness. But so what also is wonderful is that we can actually cultivate that, that uh, sense of love, that sense of kindness, the compassion, the open heart. We can do so by the, by the metta practice, by continually, um, by continually giving the intention for the heart to open. That's really what we do in the loving-kindness practice. We continually um, say, may I be well, may I be happy. And what we're doing is we're inclining ourselves to have an open heart. I like to use the metaphor, it's like we're knocking on the door of the heart. And when we do that continually, the heart eventually opens. 
and sometimes it opens readily. Uh, but this is this is a practice that we can do, and it's actually in the uh, world spiritual traditions. This metta practice is almost unique as a practice that directly and systematically opens up the heart. It's interesting because I've done some retreats which I've co-led with uh, Christian contemplatives and they have certain heart practices but nothing quite like metta. And so when we do metta retreats here, we often have uh, people from Christian and Jewish tradition come. Um, and they attend the retreat and they bring it right back into their tradition, like I, like I, I mentioned earlier. And I think I'll just finish my discussion of the metta by talking, by giving a story which I think expresses this quality of metta, which is a story I heard just a few weeks ago uh, from my mother. And it was about a woman named uh, Shirley Chisholm, who was a congresswoman uh, from New York. She was the first African-American congresswoman ever. And um, I met her a number of times because um, when I was in college, I worked in the US Congress as an aspiring politician. Look at me now. <laughs> as an aspiring politician, I worked in the US Congress. And actually, I, I, was, I was shocked by what I found there. But I did work there. That's another story. But I did work there, and I met Shirley Chisholm a number of times. She was beautiful. She was about five foot tall, very, very slight. And yet she, was the, um, she ran for president in uh, 1972. She ran, uh, she didn't win, as we know, but she ran for president. And the story concerns the time of the presidential campaign. Also on that campaign was George Wallace. And George Wallace at that time, some of you may know, was an arch segregationist. Is that how you say it? Segregationalist? Am I saying it right? Well, you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> He was um, quite racist and quite overt about it. And he, he was a presidential candidate. And he was appealing to racism. He was, um, he was shot by a would-be assassin. And he eventually was paralyzed. Some of you know that story. And he, when he was in the hospital, Shirley Chisholm went to visit him. His first words when she, when, when he, his first words when he saw her in the hospital was, I don't think your people are going to like you being here, huh? And her response to him was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. That's the spirit of metta. It's the spirit of that, uh, that open heart. That's what we're cultivating. And it's there, right in the immediacy of that situation for her without any training. <laughs> you know, it's, part, it's, the way, it's the way she was. And maybe we would be similar in similar situations. But that's the quality of metta. And what's beautiful also about that story, the story is that it has a sequel. That a short time later, Shirley Chisholm was trying to get a bill through Congress. She was the co-sponsor of a bill at that time for the minimum wage to be raised. And there was a lot of opposition among Southern Congress people. George Wallace 
intervene personally with those people and the bill passed. And then, you know, later he really, um, he basically renounced later in his life, actually not very long after that, he renounced his racism. And who knows what the impact of that one moment of metta was, that one moment of loving kindness. We don't know, right? I mean, it certainly was an impact of him being shot that can totally shake up his life. But there was that moment of her being there in that way. We don't know the effect, the power of these moments. I think it's good to remember that. So the third quality is that of courage. And I'll read again Ruth Gendler's sense of courage. We already know a little bit about courage, right? (laughs) That courage helped compassion. Courage has roots. She sleeps on a futon on the floor and lives close to the ground. Courage looks you straight in the eye. She is not impressed with power trippers, and she knows first aid. Courage is not afraid to weep, and she is not afraid to pray, even when she is not sure who she is praying to. When she walks, it is clear that she has made the journey from loneliness to solitude. Do you get that? Loneliness is being alone and having problems with it and feeling a lack. Solitude is being alone and feeling it as as fullness. It is clear that she has made the journey from loneliness to solitude. The people who, who told me she is stern were not lying. They just forgot to mention that she's also kind. So I thought about courage as a aspect that needs to be brought together with wisdom and compassion, which again is not the usual way of doing it. If you know Buddhist teachings, it's usually wisdom and compassion, the two wings of the Dharma, the bird flies. But I was thinking partly that what's between the two wings? There has to be something in the way it's our body. And I was particularly inspired from talking with a Vietnamese friend Who's a, who's a really good friend of mine named uh, Thich Minh Duc. Is his, uh, he's a monk who lives in um, the San Jose area and is probably the main Vietnamese teacher on the West Coast. He's a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, whom some of you know. And a beautiful person that ho- I hope some of you will meet. I w- I'm going to try to bring him to Spirit Rock sometime in the near future. He's a beautiful, beautiful being. And he told me that um, in Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese Buddhists decided that wisdom and compassion by themselves were not enough. And there had to be a third dimension of uh, the teachings. And so, very radically, they said, it's been wisdom and compassion for a thousand years. We also need courage. So now we have three core pillars. I love that. <laughs> and so they, they brought in courage. And it obviously, I think the meaning is that the wisdom and the compassion have to be brought into action, right? Has to be brought into the reality of our lives. And so courage is this very powerful uh, quality to develop. In other words, we can still be fairly wise, fairly compassionate, and we can still 
in a way, be a little bit imbalanced. We can be knocked around by things. We can um, not know how to act. And it's the courage, which I think I'm using as a kind of a holder for that sense of bringing wisdom and compassion into action. I think that a lot of it has to do with also with having the wisdom and compassion be embodied, manifesting through our bodies, through our actions in the world. There's a beautiful uh, poem by Mary Oliver, which has a line that, that I love in this regard, which has to do with courage. She says, I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body is a lion of courage, that it's hard to be human. It takes courage to be human. It takes a lot of courage to look directly at our lives as we are doing here, beginning to do, continuing to do. Each body a lion of courage and precious to the earth. I think that's really the spirit of our practice here. That each of us is, that's the spirit of loving kindness and of wisdom that we're each incredibly precious. And that it takes a, <clears throat> it takes a lot of courage to be human. <clears throat> it takes a lot of courage to be this unique being that each of us is. Never been anyone like any of you, right? Ever before, never will again. And we have sort of the uh, invitation to be ourselves as fully as we can, and it does take courage. Have you noticed that? It takes courage, it's not easy. You know, especially as we touch suffering, life is not easy. And yet there is this um, opportunity to uh, act in ways that manifest this courage. And so in closing, I think I would invite us to ask ourselves, which of these qualities feels especially important for me to develop? You might say, all three. <laughs> and that's okay, that's a good answer. Um, but, but there might be one that speaks more than the others to you. And, uh, and if that's the case, then take that as a significant piece of information. To help, uh, to help guide you. And I'll just, I'll, I'll close with that. That uh, I'll just close by reading this again. This, th- these lines. Each body, a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.